I would invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to the book of Genesis, Genesis 49 this morning, Genesis 49. By one man's count, 27% of the Bible can be classified as predictive prophecy. That is, one in four Bible verses is prophetic, telling us and teaching us about future events. Of the 1,817 different prophecies found in the Bible, at least half of those have already been fulfilled precisely as God promised, giving us confidence that he can and he will fulfill the rest yet to come. Folks, we can stand on the promises of God. But, (laughs) what is the value of prophecy for those who give the prophecy or for those who receive the prophecy if they never live to witness the fulfillment of the prophecy? How can one verify a prophecy if they die before its fulfillment? What difference does a prophecy make in one's life if they die before its fulfillment? For example, what if I told you that Western civilization as we know it will cease to exist in the year 2024? That's 400 years from now, Western civilization will be over. What does that do for you? In what way does that affect you? You'll be dead and gone. I'll be dead and gone. Our children, even our grandchildren, will be dead and gone for that matter. So who cares? What is the purpose then of prophecy? I've written there at the top of your notes, it's before you on the screen. In Genesis 49, Jacob issued a prophetic utterance to each of his sons regarding their descendants and the future of their tribes, but... Jacob and all his sons died in Egypt like their forefathers Abraham and Isaac. They never saw the fulfillment of God's promises to them. In fact, for Jacob and his sons in Egypt, it would be another 400 years of slavery before they would escape Egypt and make their way to the promised land. Is it a cruel joke that these all died in faith not having received the promises? What's the purpose or what's the point of prophecy if you can't witness or experience its fulfillment? So from Genesis 49, I prepared a message titled, Purposes of Prophecy. Let me pause for prayer and then we'll look at Genesis 49 together. God in heaven, we do stand on the promises of God. The promises, the prophecies that are inscripturated for us, preserved in your word, we accept and we trust literally that they will be fulfilled, God, as you promised, for you are a faithful God. But Lord, sometimes in our human experience, we get impatient and we get frustrated and we might wonder what the point of all of it is. And so I pray that this morning in the study of Genesis 49, you might help us understand, for I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You have your Bibles open before you, Genesis 49, verse number 1. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days, or a better translation, perhaps you have it, what shall happen to you in the days to come. Verse 2, Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Now, we don't always think of Jacob 
as a prophet, but Psalm 105 classifies him as a prophet. And in Luke 13, verse 28, Jesus called him a prophet because here in Genesis 49, Jacob prophesied regarding each of his sons. I want you to look at the scripture text and find the 12 names of the 12 sons of Jacob. Verse number three, you see it there, Reuben. Look at verse number five, Simeon. Also verse five, Levi. Look at verses eight and nine. You see Judah. Verse 13, Zebulun. Verse 14, Issachar. Verses 16 and 17, Dan. Verse 19, Gad. Verse 20, Asher. Verse 21, Naphtali. Verse 22, Joseph. And finally, verse 27 is Benjamin. And one by one, Jacob addressed his 12 sons and he prophetically explained what would happen happen to them in the days to come. Now, before we look at it in detail, as a point of, of introduction, let me give you four important things to note. First, these are the very last words of Jacob. Verse 33 tells us that when Jacob was finished prophesying these words, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last. And the dying words of any man shouldn't be taken lightly. These are the dying words of the great Hebrew patriarch, Jacob. Also, secondly, the words here are crafted as poetry. Now, we might think that Jacob's final words on his deathbed would be a bit broken, his thoughts a bit scattered after all. According to chapter 48, verse number 1, he was sick. According to chapter 48, verse number 2, he had to strengthen himself just to sit up on his bed. According to chapter 48, verse 10, his eyesight was dim so that he could not see. Is it a stretch for us to assume that Jacob's mind was also failing? Maybe these things are the senseless ramblings of a senile old man. But, but no, they're not. They're crafted as poetry, Hebrew poetry. And your Bible does a good job of formatting it in such a way to help us understand that if you look at chapter 48 and then look at chapter 49, you will see in your English Bibles the formatting of chapter 49 to reveal to us the, the structure, the poetic structure of Jacob's words here. It's very, very clear that he was prepared. He was probably rehearsed. These are not the ramblings of a senile old man, but the sophistication of Hebrew poetry. So these are the last words of Jacob. These words are poetry. Third, these words are more than poetry. They are prophecy. The form is poetry, but the substance is prophecy. And then fourth, and and finally, these words of Jacob are a blessing relative to each of his sons passed. So if you look at chapter 49, verse 28, chapter 49, verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father Israel spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing, or the New American Standard, I think, translates verse 28 best, with the blessing appropriate to him. You see, each prophetic blessing or prophecy that Jacob issued was an extension of his son's past. It was based upon the sins of the past or or their faithfulness or their unfaithfulness or even the name that was given to them at birth. And so these are the, the, the last words of Jacob. These words are poetry. These words are prophecy. And these words are a blessing relative to the past. Now, this is where we can get buried in the details. And some of you love that. 
and you would want me to preach a single message on each single prophetic utterance to each son so as not to miss any part. And there is a place for that. However, this morning I want to move quickly. I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. And I want to conclude by answering the question, what's the point of prophetic utterances where the one giving the prophecy, the one receiving the prophecy, will never live to see the fulfillment of the prophecy. So we begin. We begin with the prophecies. And I have for you there in your notes, I'll put it before you here on the screen. These are the 12 sons of Jacob. I want you to not look at your notes, but look at the scripture text and follow me beginning with Reuben in verse number three and four. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power, but, verse four, unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now, Reuben was the firstborn. He should have had the preeminence over his other brothers and the double portion of the inheritance. But Jacob gave that to Joseph's sons. You recall from our study last week because of Reuben's sin cited in verse number four. Next, we have Simeon and Levi, verses five through seven. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon and Levi were angered when men of Shechem violated their sister Dinah in Genesis 34. And the crime against Dinah was horrific to be sure, but then the slaughter that Simeon and Levi committed against the men and the women and the animals of Shechem was also wicked. Next we have Judah, verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion and as a lion. Who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah or the, the symbol of kingship. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Judah would rule over his brothers and his enemies. There in verse number 8. Because his military might was like one of a line. In verse number 9. And then verse number 10 has long been understood to be a messianic reference. We would translate verse number 10 like, like this. The scepter will not depart from Judah until he whose the scepter is comes. Of course, who is that? That is the Messiah, Jesus. The book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 5, calls Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who comes as as king. Uh, Next is Zebulun, verse number 13. Look there, verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships. His border shall adjoin Sidon. Now, this prophecy is troubling to us because we don't know that it has yet come to pass. In fact, Zebulun's allotted land in in Joshua chapter 19, when Joshua divided the land for the tribes, not only did Zebulun not reach the coast or ever live closely to Sidon, which is the prophecy in verse 13, um, he was far from it. And we're going to come back to this in a moment. So So mark or note verse 13 in the tribe of Zebulun. We'll come back to that in a moment. 
Next is Issachar, verses 14 and 15. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. So in contrast to Judah, who would subdue his enemies like a lion, Issachar would fail to do so and surrender to the service of the Canaanites, becoming a band of slaves. And that which we don't master often masters us. And that would be the, uh, the fate of, of Issachar and his tribe. Verses 16 and 17 is Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. Dan was the first child of Rachel through Bilhah, her handmaid. And Rachel felt that she would be vindicated through the birth of, of this son so she called him Dan, and his name suggests that God had heard her cries and favored her um, with his, his birth. But it's a curious thing that in the listing of the tribes of Israel, Revelation chapter 7, Dan is omitted. A curious thing there. Next is Gad and Asher, verse 19. Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon him. He shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Gad would continually be plagued by his neighbors and would not overcome. Asher would have a fertile plain and trade routes to the sea. Verse 21 is Naphtali. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Naphtali's future was one of freedom, evidently, a a running deer. Uh, Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, whom will help you? By the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. And we're glad to hear these positive blessings pronounced upon Joseph because we like Joseph. Joseph was bitterly attacked and he was, he was wrong, but yet he remained steadfast. And so we feel good that Joseph is rewarded with these prophetic blessings here at this point. Verse 27, then Benjamin, number 12, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. Benjamin would be fierce and aggressive. And you can read about his tribe, all of these tribes, in the book of of, of Judges, chapters 19 to 21. But, all right, here is our intent this morning. Our intent is not to identify and to interpret every specific detail of Joseph's prophecies. I think that would be a worthy exercise and and that would be a worthwhile study. However, I want us to ask and answer about the purposes of these prophecies or the purpose of prophecy in general. I'm gonna call it the problems. The problems are objections we make about prophecies, and I framed them as questions that we might ask when we read a prophetic passage. And it's curious to us, and it's a mystery to us, and and we're trying to interpret and identify each piece. 
And we might begin with this objection or this problem. What good is prophecy if we can't understand or verify the details of its fulfillment? We just read some 27, 28 verses of prophecy that on the one hand, the poetic Hebrew language, it's vague, it's cryptic, and we would have to be creatively interpretive to to discover the possible meaning for some of these fulfillments. And we would go through different gymnastics with these prophecies to identify their, their fulfillment. Some would be clear, some would be unclear. And then a cryptic, I'm sorry, a critic would come along. A critic would come along and seek to discredit any Bible prophecy that we cannot identify, that we cannot verify, that we cannot explain. For example, in Genesis 49, a Bible critic would point us to verse number 13, where Zebulun was said to dwell by the sea. But folks, we have no record of that ever happening. In fact, in Joshua 19, verses 10 and 11, the Bible tells us that they did not dwell by the sea. So we have a problem. And I would say to you, do not misunderstand me, I would say to you that the prophetic utterances in the Bible are 100% trustworthy. But they may be beyond our understanding or identification. They may be beyond our understanding or identification. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We may struggle in our human logic to explain the theologic. Even the smartest finite being cannot fully explain the infinite one. So what do we do? We maintain a spirit of humility before the text. So don't be troubled by a prophecy that you can't fully understand or identify. In fact, that has always been the case for the people of God. Consider the prophets of old. 1 Peter 1 says that they inquired and searched carefully, diligently of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The prophets were not always fully aware of exactly how or when their prophecy would be fulfilled. The Old Testament prophets did not have complete revelation to fully understand or identify all the things that they were speaking of centuries, even millennia earlier than their fulfillments. And perhaps we are no different. We are the same. And so we must always accept that we may not be able to completely understand or identify prophecy and their fulfillment. Furthermore, it may not yet be fulfilled. It may not yet be fulfilled. So, with our dilemma now in Genesis 49, verse 13, regarding Zebulun living by the sea, we have no historical record. In fact, we have great documentation that that is not, that is in fact not what happened. However, if you were to cross-reference it to Revelation 7, verse 8, or Ezekiel 48, verse 23 to 27, it may be that Zebulun will have a place by the sea in the tribulation or the millennium. So, okay, it wasn't fulfilled in the first conquest of the promised land, but God, being true to his promises, will someday complete that. 
In the meantime, it's always been common for people to wonder about and worry about the timing of the fulfillment of prophecy. Let me give you this in 2 Peter chapter 3. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, 2 Peter, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this, first, scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Or where is the fulfillment of any of the prophecies that we read about in the Bible? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing has changed. It's same old, same old. So what do you do with that? But he, con- he continues, beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So our measuring of time and days and months, years, decades, centuries, It's almost irrelevant, you see. But here's what you need to know. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Just because everything hasn't yet come to fulfillment as God promised doesn't mean that it won't. It means you're impatient is what it means. For example, I would contend that God will fully and finally fulfill all of his promises to the nation of Israel as recorded in the scripture, even though it doesn't seem like it's going well for Israel today. It's not going well for Israel today. But God has a purpose, a plan. He has made promises and prophecies that he will ultimately fulfill. And I think the same is true for the New Testament church. Notice there in the scripture on the screen that God is long-suffering. Which would give me my third suggestion. It may be an exercise of God's mercy. Now, this is almost going to sound heretical to us. Am I saying that God won't fulfill his promises? No. But there are times when prophetic utterances are warnings that allow for God to act differently than we expect him to. Consider Nineveh. One of the reasons that Jonah did not want to prophesy against Nineveh is because he knew what God would do. I think you know the account, but look at it there. God saw their works, that is, those in Nineveh responding to the preaching of Jonah, that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and became angry, so he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? I knew you were like this, God. I know who you are, God. You're a merciful God. You're a long-suffering God. Therefore, it's for that reason I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. I'll give you another scripture text. Listen to what God said through the prophet Jeremiah. The instant that I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck it up, to pull it down, to destroy it, If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, 
I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build it, to plan it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said I would benefit it. Okay, now this creates a real tension for us in our minds. But here is what I am allowing for. Some of the details of Jacob's prophecies in Genesis 49, from our perspective, our understanding, our interpretation, our timetable, some of those details might be mitigated by the mercies of God in a way that we don't understand. It seems wrong or backward or inverted or in some way. So even going back to Peter, know that God is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. So we ask the question, what good is prophecy if we can't understand or verify the details of its fulfillment? But then we can also ask another question, what good is prophecy if the people aren't around to see its fulfillment? Okay, so let's say we can go to a place like Genesis 49 and we can work our way through each of these prophecies for each of the sons of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, and we can be dogmatic in identifying every little detail and, and how that, that came to be. What's the point if they're all dead? Remember, 400 years would pass of Jacob, his sons, grandsons, great-grandsons in Egypt following Genesis 49, before Moses would lead the 12 tribes of Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. Another 40 years would pass as they wandered in the wilderness and everyone 20 years or older would die. None of Jacob's sons, none of Jacob's grandsons would ever witness the fulfillment of their father's prophetic blessings. Therefore, what's the value of them? in the hearing of those things. Um, in, in, in a similar way, what value is there in reading about things that are yet to come if we don't live to see them? So for example, the tribulation events. If you read the book of Revelation, chapters four and, and following, it's fascinating, it's horrific what's gonna happen during the seven-year tribulation period here on this earth as God pours out his judgment, his wrath on Israel and the nations. But, and I have no doubt that they will happen as promised, for it is God's word, but I'm not going to be here. I will either be dead or I will have been raptured when Jesus comes to call his church up and away. So what's the point of all of those prophetic details? Have you ever thought that? Am I the only one who's ever thought these things? I'm embarrassed if, if this is just me in my own mind, right? I hope this is resonating with you. It, it leads me to what I'm going to call the principles. And these are so simple, yet so profound. They, they answer the big picture question, what is the purpose of prophecy? And I am really reductionistic here. I'm going to oversimplify these things, but I'll give you two principles so that you can process in your own personal Bible reading, perhaps you're, you're reading through the Bible this year in 2024 and you, you've come through Genesis 49 and it's Hebrew poetry, it's Old Testament prophecy, you have no idea how to connect all the dots, does it even matter? Or you're reading through other prophetic places in the Bible like the book of Revelation, you're not gonna be here 
So does it even matter? Let me give you two principles. Number one, prophecy focuses our attention on the present, on today. The future blessings, the future judgments that are issued through prophecy ought to encourage us today, how so? To live in purity before God today. And I would give you here 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Sounds like a, a nuclear meltdown. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up at some point. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved because the, the great apocalypse is coming, therefore, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Folks, because of prophetic utterances in the scripture, we focus our attention on the present to live in a way that pleases God. You may or may not ever see the fulfillment of any given single prophecy in the scripture. But as you read, as you study, as you learn and grow, it motivates you to holy living today. A great example of this would be Moses. Hebrews 11 tells us that Moses did this very thing. By faith, Moses. Okay, faith in what? Faith in the promises of God. Faith in perhaps the very prophetic promises of Genesis 49 that Moses would never witness. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin in real time today. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to his reward. What did the prophecies of Genesis 49? Remember, Moses is the human author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. Moses was 400 years after Jacob giving these prophecies to his sons. When Moses, by faith, reads Genesis 49, as we have read it this morning, what does that do for Moses? He says, you know what? I'm going to, rather than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin today, I will suffer affliction with the Hebrew people, the people of God. Therefore, prophecy is, is given not to satisfy our curiosity. And oh, it is a curious thing. It's fascinating to study prophecy. I would encourage you to do that. But it's given to prompt us to purity and to holy living. Secondly, prophecy focuses our attention on the future. As finite, temporal, human Beings, we have a tendency to, to live only in the present, giving our attention to the things that we can see right now. Certainly, we will forecast the, the, the weather to prepare for our week, or we use a calendar to plan for our summer, summer vacation. But, but the short of it is, is that we are short-sighted people. We are extremely short-sighted. And the life of faith is not a life lived by what we can see today or what we can experience today. The life of faith is living in light of that which is unseen in the future. Hebrews 11 verse 1, you know it well. Faith is the assurance or the confidence of things unseen, not seen. First Peter 1, another text. 
Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because Jesus has risen, we have hope, assurance of everlasting life to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled. It does not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you someday. In the meantime, we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. He is preserving us, holding us fast, we sing, ready to be revealed in the last time. It's not something that we may see today. It may be, if Jesus would return today. But in the, the last time, a biblical prophecy focuses our attention on the future, which, by the way, and this is how we'll conclude, is exactly the focus of Jacob in Genesis 49, verse number 18, which we skipped. You still have your Bibles open? Genesis 49, verse number 18, we skipped it and none of you caught it. What does Jacob say? He says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. What is Jacob saying? He's saying, my hope is not in the sons that I bore or in the prophecies that I'm uttering about them. My salvation will not come from my sons, but from my God. He says, salvation is from you, and I will wait for your salvation, O Lord. Folks, the purposes for prophecy is to prove our faith in God. Lord, I, I don't know how to explain these things. I've searched through history books, geography books. I've looked through Bible scholars and, and, and all sorts of smart people and I just, I can't explain it and I can't understand it and it seems like some of these were fulfilled partially or maybe, uh, I don't know what to do with this. You know what you do with it? You live by faith, you walk by faith, and you prove your faith in accepting the promises of God. Let's pray. God in heaven, I pray that our faith would be strengthened, emboldened by the reading of your word. You said that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, but sometimes, God, when we go to your word and we read these things, we're, we're not always able to know how to connect the dots or predict the timing or find the fulfillment of things that are, are great, yet future. Lord, may we be a people who walk by faith, who live by faith, who trust in your promises. Lord, may it prove our faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.